Occupiers of logistics spaces, and by occupiers we mean manufacturers, retailers, logistics providers, increasingly want to know what is the carbon footprint of the buildings they're in. What does that mean though for landlords and developers? How will certifications play a role and what are the best practices for emissions reporting? Welcome to the final episode of JLL's Future of Logistics podcast series, where we discuss the pursuit of net zero carbon emissions with leading supply chain and logistics experts. I'm Michael Ingatiades, and I lead the supply chain consultancy practice for JLL Asia Pacific. In this episode, my colleague Elke will be joining me, and we will discuss why sustainability certifications are essential for landlords and developers, what science-based targets are, and what are the types of certifications and standards available. So Elke, you, so you run the sustainability practice uh, in Southeast Asia for JLL. Let's start, Elke, with what is net zero carbon and what is net zero carbon for real estate? That's such a difficult question because it's one of the questions that everyone tries to answer still. Obviously, after COP26 and COVID, we've seen a lot of movement. And the direction that we're going is that most of the companies, they're looking now at scope one, which is the, um, the direct emissions, scope right. two emissions from electricity consumption, as well as scope free. Free is all about your value chain. And that means that your embodied carbon, that's the hardest one because scope free is actually our supply chain. So scope free is all the fit out that we've done in this office. That's our embodied carbon, which falls under scope free, but also all the, all the emissions from our clients. Okay. And as you can imagine, for JLL with a very large client base, that's where most of our emissions sits. And that's not just for us, that's for almost every company. That's normally your largest share of, of your emissions base. Okay, so, so for JLL, scope one, it's not that much, right? Because we don't have a factory which produces something. So what would be a scope one example for, for JLL? So for JLL, it's very much about our own consumables. So for example, if we're driving a car fleet, so the energy consumption from our car fleet or the diesel consumption from our car fleet, that is a scope one. So one way for us to be reducing our scope one emissions has been to drive towards electric vehicles. Okay, so uh, if we own the current fleet, scope one, if we buy energy from externally... That is our scope the, two. And then the tenants which are in the properties we manage, that will be scope three. Yeah, scope three is everything from our clients. So that's the, the all the energy from the consumption, all the energy that's being consumed in the buildings that we manage, for example. Right. But equally so for our own offices where we're doing fit outs, we're buying materials. And that's also part of scope free um, right. emission base. Uh, so, and what is our net zero carbon commitment? Our targets are quite ambitious, like many, many other international companies. So our target is to reach net zero carbon by 2030 for scope one and two, but more ambitious is actually our target for scope three. So by 2040, we want to be net zero carbon throughout scope one, two and three. Okay. So I guess it is challenging for professional services companies like JLL. So it must be even harder for a, a manufacturer, right? So let's say for a consumer goods manufacturer who have run their own factories, they buy electricity to run those factories, and then they have products out in the market, right? Absolutely. So it's, a, it's quite an ambitious kind of target a lot of companies have set. Yeah, absolutely. And particularly for places in the world where, for example, green energy is not that widely available, it's very hard to drive down your scope two emissions from the electricity consumption. Or if you're a tenant in a particular building, you cannot influence necessarily directly what your landlord does. 
So what we start to see more and more is that this collaboration between a owner of a building as well as the user of that building is increasingly important. Okay, so you're saying that maybe the the landlord wants is not able to buy renewable energy from the grid, but you want to buy renewable energy. What happens then? Yeah, that definitely happens. So I think if we look at the at real estate, there are basically two phases, right? You start with the development of an asset, yeah. and during the development phase, it's all about embodied carbon. So what are the materials? How do you design a building to use as little materials as possible, as well as how do you design for a building that will be energy efficient during operation? Mm-hmm. Now, Starting on that, on that materials side, in a lot of places around the world, it's very hard to buy materials that have a lower embodied carbon level, simply because also those materials that are being produced with non-renewable energy right. will have a higher rating, obviously, when it comes to emissions. And, and I guess cement one. is a big part. Cement is an enormous yeah. part here, absolutely. So what we start to see is that there's more recycling happening. The question whether we can use timber instead of steel, for example, as well. So I assume then the, the ideal scenario would be uh, to not... Uh, tear down and rebuild to to retrofit an existing building? Yeah, absolutely. So retrofitting is one of the big opportunities that we see in the market. Mm. Now, obviously, for for warehouses, it might be a little bit different because if you have a very old warehouse where the structure would not be able to support renewables, for example, you have an issue when it comes to the operations. Right. Okay, and I guess that's maybe you want to put solar panels in the roof. And you can always retrofit with a with, with solar panels on an existing facility. There is no need to have a new facility as long as the structure mm. is sufficient to hold it. I've noticed some warehouses, even in Australia, quite huge warehouses, but only a small part of that uh, uh, roof has solar panels. Why is that? I always wonder, oh, since they have such an expanse... Such uh, an opportunity, Yeah, right? why didn't they just put solar across the whole roof? So I think there are two things. So one is the opportunity to generate solar on top of the roof, as well as what is the underlying demand in the facility. Mm. And why is that so important to understand the demand in the facility? That is because not everywhere you are able to export the electricity to the grid if there is more more generation than, than that there mm. is demand on site. Okay. We see that here in Singapore, actually. I've seen cases where the facility develops quite a substantial solar plant. Um, but struggle given their place in the in the grid, in the distribution grid, mm-hmm. and therefore they had they were being curtailed during certain times of the day. Okay. There needs to be enough demand to consume that energy within that part of the grid. Okay. Otherwise, well. it's not able to absorb it exactly. I mean, obviously there are there are possibilities. You can either invest in storage, or the system on the grid side can be can be upgraded, mm. but it always comes down to an investment and it's a trade-off between economics and sustainability right. in that case. So if you use solar to fulfill your energy requirements, are you carbon neutral? If all of your demand is being generated on your own roof, absolutely, or at least you're carbon neutral from an energy perspective. That doesn't mean that you're entirely carbon neutral. Though. I mean, during the night, there is no solar generation, right? So you would still have to import. Now, it's possible to use offsets. You can use renewable energy credits as well to compensate for for your energy consumption. And, and I mean, what exactly is an offset? I, I've heard of offsets, I've heard of certificates. I mean, sometimes it's a bit of a kind of a black box. You don't really know exactly how these work. No, so, so there are a couple of things. So first of all, you have renewable attributes, and mm-hmm. it depends on the, on the place and the system that they're being generated in. What do you call them? Offsets, or generally you call them credits, though. Credits. Okay. Either attributes or credits. 
will you talk about offsets more when it comes to carbon? But coming back to your point about having a roof that can generate more electricity. So in the Philippines, we were looking at a new development, for example, for FreePL. And we worked together with the developer that was looking to bring in an international logistics company. So obviously, there is a lot of traffic as well. There are trucks that come yes. in and out all the time. So what we landed on in the end was that renewables, yes, solar are absolutely on the roof. But to start with a smaller part of the roof that would just supply to the, to the warehouse. But we also realized that the moment that electric vehicles or electric trucks would be becoming more common, the demand during the day would be a lot higher and therefore they would be able to consume the energy on site. Mm. Yes. Now that's an interesting point because investors or landlords ask us, how do you do I future-proof my facilities if you're going to build something now that you want it to last for the next 20 years? I guess in 10 years, you will get those electric vehicle trucks, right? Yeah. And especially place like Singapore, it's not that long A to B, you will see more and more if you don't set up your warehouse to accommodate those chargers and maybe the batteries in the future, uh, then you have to retrofit it afterwards and there's a cost to that. Absolutely. Do, do you already see that? Do you already see demand from, from some of your clients? So there's a couple of EV truck companies from Europe that are trying to enter Asia and they're going to be doing actually soon some pilots here. And so, and definitely there is a aspiration. We've been talking to clients even in Vietnam who are looking into how to create hubs where you can have autonomous vehicles and electric vehicles. So there, there is that aspiration. The feasibility always though is a challenge because the cost to actually deploy those technologies versus a you know, diesel truck. I mean, the, the, the forecast and the total cost of ownership it should align in the next uh, three to five years, but but still, it, it's hard to to make a case. And then we see it even if you want to do last mile in Singapore with EV trucks, is is great for the brand, but the the cost, right? Already last mile is so expensive, so there, there's a barrier there. But the challenge is right that if you're investing in a new facility today, it will last for what is it, thirty years? Your yeah. trucks though have a lifespan of max ten years. Yeah. So there you see that there is a disconnect between the, the real estate market and the other part of the business. Yeah, that's true. By the time you'll be changing though that fleet, exactly. you can switch to... And yeah. there are examples uh, in the Philippines. You mentioned the Philippines. They're IKEA. They want to use uh, uh, an EV fleet for their last mile. And their logistics provider already has committed to, to provide a, a portion of their trucks to be uh, EV. So there is that um, kind of uh, demand. Uh, but I guess sometimes I'm not sure, that, is, that, is that coming from the consumers or is it coming from, let's say, the ASQs from a multinational like IKEA or like uh, MERS, those kind of big companies that are quite, let's say, sensitive to, to those topics? I think it's coming from many different angles at the moment, to be honest. I think, first of all, yes, the HQs of, of the MNCs, they start to set their strategy and some are very clear targets already when it comes to embodied carbon to maximum energy consumption, for example certification that needs to be achieved as well for their new facilities. But the reason that they're doing that is because they have net zero carbon targets. They've publicly committed to these targets and they need to deliver. If they don't, the reality is that we start to see that CEOs are being fired if they don't right. deliver. Right. Um, and a lot of these companies, they have targets either 2025 or 2030. So there's no time to wait anymore. But equally so, it's a value of the company in the end because the investors start to believe that the 
your sustainability performance is linked to the value of your company. So I think that's one of the key drivers. And why are they? Why do they believe that? That's because there's regulation. Customers are asking for sustainability. So it's almost your license to operate to be sustainable. Right. And you mentioned certification. With clients, we typically come across lead, yes. uh, lead and you know, lead platinum, which is the, the, the top, let's say, uh, top tier certification for many logistics buildings around in Asia. I mean, is there a, a primary certification that if you have a facility, you should just just uh, try to get that one? So you know my view on certifications. Don't get me wrong. I think certification is important because it's a tool to understand what we're working towards to, and it's creating some common knowledge. Yeah. The reality, though, is that the link between energy efficiency and an actual rating is not that clear. Okay. And, and that's also why there are some question marks whether it's the right it's always mm. the right thing. That said, though, I do think that it helps to create a certain awareness and it creates right. a certain benchmark of, of what can be achieved. So it's not, it's not black and white? It's not It's uh, not black and white, no. So what we see is that a lot of the, the strategies have both energy efficiency expectations, embodied carbon expectations, but also an expectation when it comes to the certification. Now, yes, LEED is very popular uh, for new builds, but when it comes to, to logistics, it's, it's not that easy. So what we do notice in APAC, there is a bit of a, a trend towards ETCH. It's being okay. developed by IFC. Is it a European standard? It's an international standard. Um, and it's more focused on some key parameters mm -hmm. like energy and water and materials. So it's, a, it's relatively easier, particularly for, for logistic facilities mm -hmm. when when they're not as complex. We're currently working on a new development in Malaysia, for example. The corporate had already set targets globally on what a new facility should look like, and it should be lead platinum. That's the minimum standard that they're asking for anything being developed of this year. But equally so, they are looking at a whole range of other mm. uh, criteria as well. They're not just focusing on the certification, but they also look at this is the kilowatt hours per square meter that needs to be achieved. This is the embodied carbon and so on. Yeah, and it's interesting because, you know, we, we did a study in Australia and uh, one of the sustainability uh, dimensions that is not looked into these certification kind of frameworks is um, uh, for a supply chain, for a supply chain, that the location of the warehouse, how does that affect the transportation and the kilometers Correct. used by the trucks by the fleet yes. because usually it's the commuting of the employees of a building right if Correct. it's public transport etc but how about if that facility is very far away and the trucks have to you know go a to b b to c you know they have to do a very long routes yeah. you know how do you incorporate that and we found that we had to kind of compare it with a with the alternative option and say okay if that tenant would go to option B, they would have to uh, travel in a year, you know, 20% more kilometers than right. option A. So option A uh, is, let's say, more green. And we managed to get some additional score kind of points against that one. So, yeah, as you said, right, there's no black and white. And uh, uh, yeah, it feels like generally sustainability, right? Even the, the terms we use, right? ESG and sustainability, they're not black and white, right? Can well, be... it covers a lot, right? I mean, we yeah. talked a lot about net zero carbon, but more generally, it's also about resilience. It's about productivity. 
so, so there is a lot more than just net zero carbon, although at the moment there is a lot of focus, obviously, on net zero carbon, given COP26, COP27 coming as well. And all the commitments that are being made by both countries as well as companies, I mean, the number of companies committing to science-based targets is increasing every day. And, um, and that shows how important it is for everyone to get going. And, and it's not just the, the MNCs, right? Don't forget also the investors, mm-hmm. like investors and banks, also the, the debt side of the equation. There is a point that people can no longer invest in brown assets. Right. And brown, uh, brown is basically an asset which is... Not sustainable. sustainable right? So yeah. it's, a, it's probably an old warehouse which they don't have any kind of solar, any kind of me- uh, way to measure their... The usage of energy. Correct. Where there is no way to handle the waste that's being generated on site either. Correct. Yeah. And, and that's becoming a problem. If investors are um, exploring to invest in a new facility, they will be doing due diligence. And they are looking at, when it's a new um, warehouse, they're making sure that the design is sustainable and that the operations will be sustainable. But if it's an existing asset, they will try to understand what is the amount of money that needs to be invested in order to make that asset um, uh, sustainable. Right, a green. A green, exactly. And um, I mean, there are global, there are curves of what's being expected in terms of the energy consumption for a green asset. And the amount that needs to be invested is considered to be a discount on the the property value. Right. So yes, it's becoming extremely important. And and even when we look at at the debt side, we're we're all very familiar with with credit risk. And banks start to understand that sustainability is also a risk, that not being sustainable means that you need to pay a risk premium. Okay, so so it's clear that investors, developers, they don't have an excuse not to not to go for green, right? Because there's a lot of pressures from the markets and they have to look at the valuation of their future buildings at the end of the day. Um, and the tenantability. And the ten- yeah, so how do you attract the tenants? And I assume even the, the people who want to work for those companies, right? They must, uh, you know, that must be part of why you work for a company, that they have a purpose, that they are sustainable. Yeah, um, I think from the research that we've done, we see that the majority of the people are now keen to work for a sustainable company and make very conscious choices on where they spend their time. So from a talent acquisition perspective, sustainability is becoming important as well. Yeah, and I see, uh, I mean, a lot of the facilities now have the full kind of ESG uh, part, the social as well is there. So you have uh, facilities in in Japan where they even have a daycare facilities available. They provide Fruit, obviously, very yeah. healthy environment. Yeah, fruit. They have gardens and a rooftop, and they have basically cafeterias that are, you know, cafeterias that you would actually uh, like to go and relax, right? So um, uh, that human centricity is also that something comes in. I guess human centricity is not really linked to carbon. It's part of the whole ESG umbrella, but uh, but we see kind of the whole pack- package coming to fruition. Yeah, we do. And, and I think that that's why sustainability is such a complex topic, right? Because it does indeed also include the productivity, health and well-being of, of your employees. And it has a very clear business case as well. It might, might not be as tangible, yeah. but not being able to attract people to work in your facility is becoming a, a big issue. We talk about like logistic facilities, but there are also um, waste treatment facilities, for example, where Traditionally, the, the working conditions have not been that favorable. So in those kind of environments, you need to provide that extra bit 
um, and, and create that social and enticing environment for your employees. So I guess the, the, you know, the cost of not you know, pursuing your net zero carbon commitments, because I assume there must be companies who've set a goal and then after a few years, they kind of reset it a bit. But I guess overall, are you kind of, are you positive that, you know, kind of globally, we're moving in the right direction, that there's really change happening? Well, I think net, net zero carbon is quite black and white, right? Okay. I mean, if you, if you commit to net zero, that's, that's that's pretty clear, at least when you define it, scope one or two, or even three, um, that is something that's pretty clear, particularly when you put a date on it. What we will start to see, though, is that many companies are not going to make it. Mm -hmm. and because it's easy in 10 years' time, you know, you might... Uh, the CEO might not be there anymore, right? And probably have moved on. Exactly. Yeah. But I think, and that's one of the important things that's been acknowledged now, that you cannot just start with, if your target is 2050, you can't start in 2048. It doesn't work. We all yeah. know that. And that's why a science-based target is also very clear on you need to, um, on, you need to have intermediate goals as well so that we can track and understand where you are versus your 2030, 40 or 50 target. There is another, I mean, net zero carbon is, is one aspect, science-based targets is one, but there's also the RE100, so all the companies that have committed to sourcing renewable energy. And it's the same, even there, there is a very clear pathway to how do you get to 100% renewables. So there's, there's awareness that sustainability doesn't come overnight. It's a, yeah. it's a roadmap that you need to develop. It's becoming stronger and stronger. And um, that's also why reporting has so much increased over the last um, 12 yeah. months or 12 to 18 months. No, that, that's fantastic. And, and yeah, I guess we know that the built environment uh, constitutes, and correct if I'm wrong, around a third of... Uh, it's 40%. 40%. Okay, so 40% of total carbon emissions, right? It's so, enormous. And with all the new developments, I mean, particularly after well, COVID has helped uh, tremendously in terms of uh, the logistics sector, particularly, and, and I think... Southeast Asia has been a big contributor in that as well. Well, that's a, it's a, it's a positive uh, message that, uh, all, you know, there's a lot of things happening in the, in the built environment, which, which has such a big impact to the total carbon emissions, right? So I think the, the, ambitious, the targets are ambitious, uh, but there's a lot of people working on the ground to make that happen. And there's a lot of top-down and bottom-up pressures to, to see that along. So thank you, Elke, for your time. Thank you. You're listening to the Future of Logistics podcast by JLL, and I'm Michael Ignatiades. Check out our other episodes and reach to us if you have any questions on your decarbonization journey. Thanks for listening. <laughs>